Welcome to the Pike and Shot podcast, Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. My guest today is Margaret Myers. Margaret is the director of the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue. She established the Dialogue's China and Latin America Working Group in 2011 to examine China's growing presence in Latin America and the Caribbean. Previously, Myers worked as a Latin American analyst and China analyst for the U.S. Department of Defense, during which time she was deployed with the U.S. Navy in support of Partnership of the Americas. Myers also worked as a senior China analyst for Science Applications International Corporation, a consultant for the Inter-American Development Bank. When looking at the world map, two places that seem very far removed from one another are China and Latin America. In most images of the globe, they are quite literally on opposite sides. However, in many ways, China and Latin America are closer than one would think and have significant economic, diplomatic, and geopolitical interaction. Though the Pacific is vast, they really are just one ocean apart. Over the last three decades, China has increased its investment and ties to Latin America. But as the CCP has steadily become pricklier in their international diplomacy and more confrontational with Western partners, nations in Latin America are faced with a stark choice stick with their historical local hegemon, the U.S., or follow the money with Chinese investment and risk alienation from neighbors in their hemisphere. Margaret Myers is here to unpack this complex and fast-evolving situation. Welcome, Margaret. Please give us a background on how you came to focus on China's inroads to Latin America. Well, thank you so much for the introduction, Eric. Um, Gosh, I guess I sort of, I've been working on China-Latin America affairs in some depth for about a decade now. And I came to it in, in a rather organic way, I, I guess, through through languages, um, but also through a series of, of, of experiences, you know, sort of developed over the course of, of many years, which none of which focused on the intersection of, of China, Latin America, or the sort of China, Latin America dynamic, because that's a relatively new phenomenon. But, um, you know, through opportunities in DOD, as you mentioned, and, and elsewhere to work on both the Latin American region and on China um, to study and and work in those places as well um, and to develop sufficient, you know, sort of language skills so as to be able to now, you know, study the relationship from various perspectives. Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride, obviously, you know, I, I've been looking at this topic for, for a long time, but it's ever evolving. Um, and so there's really never a dull moment when you're studying China-Latin America relations or China in the world for that matter. Yeah, definitely. Well, I always like to start with some history and some background for our listeners. Um, let's start with a general history of Chinese-Latin American relations. Uh, since the inception of the CCP, or I guess even before that, um, how have the two interacted and uh, which nations have been most open to Chinese influence? Well, you know, I'm glad you take it back that far because. Um, it's a common, perhaps misconception, right? That the the relationship is is new. Um, you know, it, it date, certainly dates back to the Mao era and even before, right? There were it was trade between certain countries and 
in Latin America and, and China, you know, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago. Um, <clears throat> in addition to that, uh, you know, during the Mao era in particular as part of, you know, China's at that time focus on developing strong ties with the rest of the developing world, um, there was considerable outreach off, often to sort of like-minded political parties in, in Latin America, socialist parties, communist parties, uh, to facilitate stronger <clears throat> bilateral ties and to engage in some, you know, limited forms of economic cooperation. Um, that said, you know, really things have started developing at a much more rapid pace since the 1990s, the late 1990s, in fact, when just a handful of mostly state-owned enterprises entered the region through Venezuela primarily and Peru uh, to begin work in the region's extractive sectors um, with a focus specifically on oil and in some cases, copper, for example. Um, and since then, you know, uh, I guess you could say the rest is history because since then we've seen an, a rapid expansion, not only in the trade dynamic, which has continued to underpin the relationship for many years now, um, but also in various forms of, of investment, whether we're talking about greenfield investment, right, new projects or mergers and acquisitions, you know, buying existing ones. Um, and uh, also in the financial realm, uh, China has been historically speaking, although they're, you know, this, this particular relationship is evolving in important ways as well, but has been an important financial partner for a handful of countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Great. Well, Many listeners will remember from their U.S. history classes that uh, there's something called the Monroe Doctrine established the Western Hemisphere as the U.S. sphere of influence at the exclusion of outside powers. Um, and this this was initially set up to keep European powers and colonial powers out of the Western Hemisphere. Um, but how has a, a rising China over the last, um, specifically over the last three to five decades, um, has the U.S., how has the U.S. tried to enact that Monroe Doctrine on, on a rising China? Certainly, you know, the Monroe Doctrine is, a, um, is not a concept without <laughs> challenges, right? It's not a, a notion, um, an idea that's viewed particularly positively in much of Latin America. And with that in mind, you know, the Obama administration tried very hard to downplay, right, the um, the U.S. interest in uh, either interference in, right, or in making uh, policy that would exclude um, engagement, economic or otherwise, from other uh, critical actors. Um, that said, you know, during the, the, the Trump administration, we saw uh, Secre Secretary Tillerson really pretty early on sort of resurrect the notion of the Monroe Doctrine in, in a speech. Um, and indeed, you know, that uh, the doctrine itself was referenced several times since then. Um, <clears throat> though Biden administration has not, you know, referenced it by, by name, um, but certainly it would seem, you know, whether under Trump or under Biden, that there is considerable concern among many stakeholders, many observers in Washington about the extent of Chinese influence in 
the Western Hemisphere and specifically in Latin America and the Caribbean and what that means for regional security and for U.S. influence um, in, in the region and U.S. efforts and, and ability to achieve um, certain objectives. And so whether or not we're using the words, right, there does uh, appear to be uh, a commitment at the very least to trying to work with the region uh, to shape policy um, and to ensure that, uh, you know, these countries are <clears throat> viewing China in a certain light. Whether that's working or not uh, is another question entirely. <laughs> and, you know, I think for some U.S. partners, there may be um, some commonality in views on China. Um, for others, uh, not at all. Um, and so it's been, I think, in many cases, an uphill and, and sometimes losing battle for the U.S. in this particular respect. Yeah, I, and that, that brings me to my next question. A lot of times Latin America has been the ideological battleground for the U.S. as much as um, as much as an economic battlefield. And uh, you could look at the, the inter intervention in the in the Cold War or even before that, uh, getting in there and, and setting up different regimes. Um, what role does ideology play in Chinese investment in Latin America? Is there any are they favoring certain systems of government? Are they looking at how different governments treat human rights? Um, does that play into their decision of which business partners they want to pick in this region? You know, Eric, it's a really important question, and it's my view that really it does not. Um, China has expressed an interest and followed through on that interest in engaging every country in Latin America and the Caribbean economically speaking, in some form or another. Um, at the onset of the relationship, or this enhanced relationship, right, 1990s, early 2000s, we saw a preference for engaging countries that, um, where, where the governments were, uh, were on the left. Um, and so there were, I think, some analysts who, who jumped to the conclusion that, you know, well, that certainly means that China prioritizes uh, certain views and, and, you know, is pursuing and supporting a certain ideological angle in Latin America and the Caribbean. And, you know, certainly there was a degree of comfort, you know, when, when engaging some of these governments in part because they, you know, embraced China with open arms, having in many cases rejected continued engagement with the U.S. and other partners. But China's interest in these countries um, was often related to their natural resources. If you're talking about Venezuela, right, or uh, Ecuador, or Brazil, or Argentina, where, uh, you know, China, and especially Chinese banks, such as China Development Bank and China Exim Bank, engaged extensively early on. Um, these countries have some of the most critical natural resources, right, that, that, that China is pursuing in the region and, um, you know, very much are areas of focus for China and for China's going out strategy. And so it was natural, right, that China would be drawn to those particular countries. And as I said before, these countries were not in a position necessarily to turn China away. 
at that particular juncture. Some, uh, you know, had defaulted on IMF loans and had very limited access to international credit markets. So when China came knocking, they were, you know, very willing to open the door, so to speak. Um, that said, China has worked very hard over the past two and more or more decades, right, to uh, develop partnerships with wide-ranging Latin American and Caribbean actors, and to do so in a way that demonstrates considerable flexibility, right? So um, oil-backed loans are going to be of interest potentially to some countries and not at all to others. Um, China's lending model has been, you know, of, of very little interest to countries such as Mexico, for example, or, or Chile. But these countries are, you know, exceedingly interested in, in various forms of Chinese investment and in boosting trade with China and have been for a very long time. And in fact, Chile was the first country in the region to establish a free trade agreement with China very early on. Um, so it matters not, you know, what, what a, what a country's political landscape may look like and how um, leaders uh, sort of view their, their roles in these countries and the ideologies that they purport China is interested in engaging most often on, on from an economic perspective on pragmatic terms. Yeah, looking at some of the projects that have been uh, attempted or sold or completed in a lot of cases in these countries, um, it really does seem like they're just following the money and and trying to figure out where they can make um, make a buck in the area in the region. And uh, one of the most interesting projects that I was looking into was the the Nicaragua Canal project, which a lot of people don't realize was actually the original location where they wanted to build a canal before Panama. It's it's a bit longer, but it's less mountainous. And uh, they can use the lakes in the region and and get ships across that way. And and there was a, a Chinese businessman by the name of Wang Jing who wanted to basically re rebrand and bring back this project and sold it to the Nicaraguan government and uh, got a fifty year concession from them. But it went it went nowhere and it has since been abandoned. I think as far back as twenty seventeen, it's been completely abandoned. And you do see when you look at these projects, their completion. Uh, percentage, let's say, isn't always the best. Does does the failure of some of these projects or the 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 loan structure, like you said, um, it, it looks great on paper to a lot of these governments, and they say this is going to revitalize our economy and do X Y Z. Uh, but it seems that uh, a good percentage of them end up not uh, not really providing what they originally thought they would provide. How does that affect the landscape of investment and the landscape of of the uh, relationship. Certainly, I mean, you're right. Uh, I mean, that was a, a very public failure, right? The, the Wang Jing's efforts to, to build, resurrect this notion of a Panama, or excuse me, a Nicaragua Canal, um, which was done, you know, very much in partnership with, with Ortega. And even, you know, initially with Ortega San Lorian, they were, they were good friends as I understand it, but, um, and that was, you know, quite a fascinating roller coaster ride to follow. Uh, and as you said, I think it's been abandoned since. But yeah, no, certainly that's not the only project to have failed, right? Or to be sort of indefinitely stalled. Um, you see this happen in lots of different sectors and different countries for wide ranging reasons, sometimes as a result of 
you know, protest on the ground um, among civil society groups or local communities, um, which can derail a project or or significantly delay it. Um, sometimes it's the result of Chinese actors determining that this is not a bankable project, right? Or not worth the risk that the Chinese company would incur um, <clears throat> were it to proceed. In other cases, um, corruption has, you know, has derailed these projects. No pun intended when I'm talking about the Carretero Railway, for example, right, where, um, you know, a corruption scandal uh, within at, at the level of the presidency, right, um, created a major challenge for uh, for Chinese Mexican consortium, which was the sole, I believe, bidder for that particular project. And, and um uh, you know, derailed in that particular instance, um, any prospect for their participation in developing that railway. Um, in still other cases, um, there have been concerns about the nature of, of Chinese dealmaking, whether it was sufficiently transparent in nature um, and, you know, involved all of the stakeholders, right, that needed to be involved um, and, uh, you know, was done more or less, you know, uh, in an open manner. And in the case of Panama, you know, very recently we saw wide ranging up upwards of 16 deals struck after Panama cut ties with Taiwan. Um, and a few of those have indeed been sort of stalled, right, because of concerns about the ways in which they were negotiated. When the new government came in, they revisited those projects, and there has been very little progress on a handful of them since then. So the reasons that a lot of this happens are, are wide-ranging. That said, the sectors in which China tends has historically operated, right, and these are expanding, there's considerable diversification in the sorts of sectors that China is approaching at this particular juncture. But historically, there's been a, a, an extensive focus on infrastructure development uh, and on extractives. And these are sectors that, you know, historically have been problematic for a lot of companies, not just Chinese companies, right? Um, it's not uncommon for infrastructure projects to be derailed. For wide-ranging reasons. Even right? in the United States, yeah. Even in the United <laughs> States, exactly. Or to take 20 years to build an escalator. But nevertheless, you know, it's um it's you know, it's it's a sector that is uh, you know that it's risky to operate in, right? And and companies assume a lot of risks simply by pursuing certain projects. Um and so, yeah, I don't know that it's a necessarily a, a China issue all of the time, right? Or, or if it's that, it, you know, one must assume that certain projects or at least a certain percentage of projects are unlikely to proceed if you're operating, for example, in the mining sector or in, in infrastructure development or in other sectors where there is, on the one hand, you know, considerable civil society opposition to, you know, to more project development among environmental groups, among others, right? Um, and where, you know, the levels of corruption and, and deal making have historically been quite high, whether we're talking about, you know, China, uh, Chinese engagement or, or engagement by other actors. Um, so it's hard to say whether, you know, China's rates of, of failure, right, in project delivery are significantly higher than than that of those of other countries or other companies, Um in part because, you know, there are just so many more projects, right, that, that we are considering right now and that have emerged more, you know, sort of all at once within just a matter of, of years. And so a lot of this story is still kind of developing. 
and we'll continue to do so. And perhaps five years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, you know, um, China actually was more successful or was less successful than X actor from whatever country. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the the Panama relationship because that that announcement of Panama uh, de-recognizing Taiwan, um, that was totally, from everything that I've read, totally blindsided the, U- the U.S. administration. I think they found out pretty much day of. Um, do you see the U.S. at all changing? Uh, I guess it's administration, administration, it's going to be different. But do you see tactics changing and engaging with Latin American nations, having to sweeten deals or feeling just more pressure uh, with a new generous competitor entering the scene? I think a lot of the policy that we've seen of late reflects an understanding on the part of the U.S. that the U.S. must engage more extensively, especially on economic terms, in order to compete effectively with with China and also in order to maintain strong ties to Latin American governments. Um, and, you know, certainly this sort of started, well, this has been ongoing, right? I mean, I, we, there was the America Crece initiative, right, under the Trump administration. And we saw Build Back Better World, which is global in nature, but was introduced in the Latin American region in Colombia and in Ecuador. Um, and as I understand it, there'll be some new announcements during the summit, right, that are uh, intended to demonstrate U.S. commitment, economic commitment in particular, right, to uh, enhanced engagement with the region, whether on ter- trade terms, right, rather in the area of trade or through investment, um, often coming from the private sector, but motivated ideally by um, by incentives provided by the U.S. government. And so, um, certainly, I think there's there's a recognition, right? And time and again, we see efforts, um, so-called whole of government efforts, right? To try to incentivize, promote more in the way of economic engagement with the region. The challenge for the US is that our economic engagement in Latin America is private sector led. And so it's not led by by the government as in the case of, of, of China. And of course, Chinese companies also make their own decisions frequently, but are you know subject to guidelines and 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 policy interests right that are clearly articulated by wide-ranging uh, Chinese ministries um, and other government actors so um, it, it's a bit apples and oranges right when you're comparing how China and the US engage the region and it has been thus far a challenge for the US to fully incentivize motivate um, you know, resources and allocate them uh, to regions that have been prioritized. For example, Latin America is part of broader interest in, in competing effectively with China. Well, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the summit for the Americas that's going on right now. And um, I was going to ask, I ask a lot of my guests to try to make some sort of a uh, hypothesis about what's going to go on in the future. What, what hotspots do you see or announcements that might come out of that summit uh, to counter anything in with the China Latin America relationship? Uh, where are they making inroads, and where are they finding roadblocks? You know, my 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 hope, and I think that the Biden administration is indeed taking this route, is that the summit has very little to do with China, frankly. Um, in part because you know, really, what the U.S. needs to do if it wants to maintain a strong presence is to generate. Uh, a a hemispheric policy with broad buy-in, right, among hemispheric actors um, or hemispheric strategy, right? Um, And to do so with hemispheric interests in mind, you know, bearing in mind, keeping in account 
what the U.S. specifically can do in cooperation with other countries in, you know, Latin America to advance what really are, you know, wide-ranging uh, common objectives, uh, whether it concerns migration or climate change or you know, economic recovery or health or really you name it. There are so many areas where, you know, a hemispheric agenda would do much to advance progress and improve overall well-being. And so I do hope, right, that that is what uh, those who are participating in the summit take away from the summit is that the U.S. is committed, right, to a much more expansive hemispheric agenda um, and to understanding the various ways in which regional actors can cooperate to, you know, to support shared interests, um, regardless of, of Chinese engagement, right, and in spite of it. Um, that said, obviously, a lot of the interest in, you know, engaging econo more econo economically speaking, excuse me, with the region is, has been, you know, historically, as we mentioned, right, and it will continue to be motivated by an interest in competing more effectively with China. And so to the extent that there are new economic uh, agendas, right, or initiatives announced, um, certainly, you know, there's a China element that would, you know, underlying those, right, or, or that, that ought to be taken into account when understanding, you know, how and why they were formulated. But in terms of the overall narrative, I hope it's one that's focused really simply on, on crafting a, a hemispheric um, strategy. That's great. I, I like that, that you're, uh, you're looking at it as a very sort of hopeful view. We should be making it a more positive relationship between all of these places. And we should honestly, we should want countries to want to come to us for uh for their needs whether it's energy or infrastructure or anything um being being a good business partner is the best way to get more business absolutely and with that i just want to say thank you again so much for joining me today margaret and discussing this fascinating and underreported topic uh, thank you also to our listeners as always for joining us on the pike and shot podcast Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure.